0: Today, we are going to walk in the shoes of a child going through foster care. Join us today on Fostering the Future.
1: Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat.
0: We believe that every human has incredible and equal value, regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I am not here with Kat today. Today, I am here with Nicole, and she is joining me in the studio while Kat is on vacation with her kiddos. Today, we have a special guest, an amazing social worker, and former foster youth. We are so happy to have Marissa with us today. Welcome to the studio, Marissa. Thank you. Marissa,
1: we have a very important question for you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks?
2: These days, I think it's a vanilla sweet cream gold brew. It's pretty simple, but um, I still get the coffee flavor and but it's still a little sweeter. Marissa, can you tell me what your current career
0: is and um, what your experience with foster care is?
2: So I'm a master's level social worker. I currently work in licensing, but I was a case manager and I was in the system as a child.
0: One of the things that I think is pretty extraordinary about you is that you were in foster care when you were younger. Yes. You had this experience growing up and have turned it around to want to help other people who've been going through what you went through. Right? right.
2: You'd actually maybe find it surprising that quite a bit of the workers that you work around are much like myself. They experienced something in childhood that made them want to come to the system and try to make it better.
0: So many kids who've been in foster care really don't end up getting the resources or encouragement to complete high school, even let alone college. And right. if be a social worker, there's a lot of schooling involved. It's not just like a rising above your circumstances kind of thing. It's kind of like defying all odds. You know, the percentage of kids who were we're in foster care, who graduate from college is, what is it, like 3%? It's like 3%. If this is something that you fought for to get through, and then this is not this big money-making career, you know? No. Nobody's <laughs> nobody's it's rolling not. in the dough in social work, you know? And it's certainly not for great success and rewards and accolades because who is more beat up than anybody in social? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> like, like case managers. So nobody, like, no. you <laughs> did this huge thing, and the rewards at a worldly level are pretty minimal, so it is a thankless job
2: they tell you immediately this is a thankless job
1: <laughs> so <laughs> which is kind of insane because as a case manager at least here in, in this state you're the legal guardian of the child when they're in foster care when they're in foster care so it's kind of insane that it's such a thankless job
2: <laughs> when <laughs> yeah. when you are so responsible you're, yes there is so much liability. It's scary as a case manager.
0: Especially because a lot of the case managers that you see are freshly out of college. Oh, you know
1: what I ask a lot? How many cases do you have? Because that's pretty indicative of how long yeah. they've been a case
0: manager. They if they
1: tell me they have like 10 kids or less, I'm like... Oh, they're brand new. Oh. I
0: have to teach you everything. <laughs> yes. That's really brand new. That's like only a month in. To have that responsibility at such a young age where you have these children's lives in your hand. And we've seen in the paper where situations happen where kids get hurt and the case manager is legally responsible wow.
2: for their safety when you see them once a month. Trust me, constant stress that was a constant worry of mine I mean having a kid having one kid at any
0: age this is a lot of anxiety at a young age is a tremendous amount of anxiety but having 20 to 30 to maybe some more kids at one time what can you tell us about why you came into care initially
2: initially I was brought into care, I was 13, and there were quite a few reasons. Environmental hazards were probably the first one. Neglect was absolutely the second one. And then there was quite a bit of abuse happening in the form of like emotional and verbal abuse. That didn't really come out right away, but the most evident things were neglect and environmental hazards. Neglect, and that was when you were 13. When you were younger, though, you were with a relative? That was with my relative. That neglect, environmental hazards, the abuse, that happened for me maybe about a year and a half before I was removed. But I was still with that family before that. You were raised by relatives. Right. From the time I was born. So I was raised by relatives, yes, until I was 13 when I was removed. But I was still raised by relatives thereafter.
0: Prior to that year, there was no unsafe living
2: conditions. Things had declined. But I often say that I had a really great childhood up until about the age of 10 or 11. And that's when things went downhill. I I was raised by my grandparents. So they got older. And things happen when you get older. So up until that point, I had everything that any normal child would have. I had a loving family. I had everything I wanted. I was honestly pretty spoiled. (laughs) (laughs) And so I say I had a really good foundation in those early years. So it wasn't until I I hit that preteen age that things went downhill.
0: And that's a hard time for anybody, even in very stable home. I know like I had loving parents. I had a great home. I had everything that I could want or need. But that was a very tough time like from the age of probably 11 to like what 41 I mean <laughs> <laughs> but you know like those like those are the years where you're like the least confident in yourself oh absolutely like, and I can't imagine going through those times and, and not having like stability to say like you had a great childhood and that's really good because I think a lot of the mental health pieces for your life are built in that time so you were able to get past that time frame and then also you had this little bit of chaos in your life When when you when most girls of that age probably need that comfort and security and confidence the most. The thing that really got me through that time in my life was my parents were always very like nobody's parents are perfect. But the thing that I think my parents did very well was to build confidence in me, constantly telling me that I'm smart, that I can do anything. I was able to build confidence because I knew how much my parents cared for me because those are years that you really need that Stability, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do need that. It's even
1: more imperative to have it during that kind of middle school time where people (laughs) are mean and, you know, like support. Yeah, you do need support. I had a hard time in middle school and I came from, you know, my parents were still married, my grandparents were married until they passed away. You know, I've come from a bunch of stable relationships. You know, we moved a little bit when I was in middle school and changed schools a little bit. And I think because I'd had a little bit of a different experience moving, I had grown a little bit and in a different way. And so if I found myself having a really hard time connecting with other people. It's actually nothing I've ever talked about before, <laughs> but I've found I had a very hard time connecting with people and making friends in middle school because I was in different middle schools. And then I went to a middle school where I just didn't feel like I fit in or I belong. But I hated, freaking hated middle school. <laughs> it was, it was I mean, the so only worse. thing first
0: in middle school was high school. High school was really, really bad for me. High school was, high school got better for me.
2: It did for me too. I <laughs> wouldn't go back
0: to middle school. <laughs> yeah, Never. Never. Everything
2: aside, Never. middle school was terrible.
0: What do you remember about the day that you were removed when you were
2: 13? Honestly, I I remember the entire removal. I can't say I remember the entire day, but I remember everything about the removal. As much as I blocked out, I've tried not to remember. I unfortunately it was traumatic, so I, I do remember the entire thing. I think I was the one that answered the door, which, I mean, at 13, I don't know if you should be answering the door. Um, So I think back to that, like how awkward that was. Um, So, I mean, I got my, my parents and they were just like, what is this about? I mean, it became pretty evident immediately, like the situation. And so it was just kind of crazy from there. And it was really scary. Unfortunately, my grandmother turned to me and accused me of doing it, which... Scared the living daylights out of me. I remember her doing that, and I just immediately started bawling my eyes out because I was so scared of what she was going to do to me. Of making the call or of. Yeah. Yeah, of, of making the call of somehow I, I don't I, I'm thinking a 13 year old making that call. like She accused me of it because oh. uh, I I actually I really don't know why that resulted in the police coming because the police did not come. At that point, it was it was pretty quick, but it was chaos because, I mean, she immediately acted in that way.
0: You know, I, I think that we've spoken about how a lot of times when these things happen, that parents often aren't able to see their own accountability and are looking for someone to put the blame on.
2: Yeah. And and for whatever reason, in that moment, it was me. But um, it was actually my biological mother that called, which she later shared with me and with my grandmother. I still somehow was held at fault. I can't really remember the conversations, but she still held me to a fault on that. Did you ever get an apology
1: or anything from her once she
2: knew that it wasn't you? No, not at all. Was there ever an acknowledgement if it wasn't an apology? I think I, I was still blamed. Like she still blamed me because I probably told my mom too many details. I, I think that's probably what happened.
1: Um, that kind of goes into what we were talking about earlier. Don't right. talk to social workers. and right. Kind of.
2: Right. My mom had been trying to get me out of my grandparents' house um, and I had contact with her at that point. So eventually she did make that phone call. Sometimes I think it was probably too late because at, at that point. I think there was so much damage that had been done and she didn't live in the state. So her, she wanted for me to go live with her. What ended up happening was my aunt was immediately called who lived about an hour north and she came and picked me up. And that was pretty much it for, for that day. And my mom stayed in town for a little while, but I mean, they never ended up let me, letting me go with her, but that was her goal.
1: Were your grandparents, was this your biological mother's parents? Yes. Okay. And the aunt that you went to, is that your biological mother's sister? Yes.
0: Is the aunt someone that was like a part of your life that you knew very well and saw her a lot?
2: Yeah. She was a part of my life growing up. She was in and out. I, she would come. I mean, she lived an hour away. So I don't know. That sounded really far when I was a kid but now I'm like oh, not, that's really not bad at all, I drive that every day I was going to say with your job you probably drive that 10 times a day so honestly, yeah, right. I mean it takes me over an hour to get across the county now, it's yeah. the same county, yeah. and this was two counties north, so I stayed with my aunt the entire time, she was she was a part of my life, I knew her very well I loved her, I relied on her whenever she would come to town, I was always excited, she'd come to Christmas, so I knew her very well, she was not a stranger at all, Uh she had stepped back um, from coming, I think, around that time. And I think it was just because my grandmother was was not a very nice person. She was also drinking, although that wasn't really ever really highlighted too much And when I was removed. She was not a very pleasant person. And so my, my aunt had taken a step back, but I was glad she was so close and it was a comfortable place for me to go. I didn't have a room. I didn't have a bed, but um, they let me stay with her. And I Slept on her couch for about four months. (laughs) She may not have fully known what was going on in the
0: house, but she had an idea clearly because she was stepping back because she didn't want to be around that environment. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe. But she knew there was a kid living in that house, so it would have been helpful if she had made a call. Yeah, absolutely. But maybe it could have minimized... The situation a little bit.
2: And I later learned that my mother and my aunt at the time were very close. And so they were talking about, like, what can they do? Like, uh, what's the best scenario? And, and like I said, it, it went on for about a year, year and a half. And I think to some degree it happened for so long because my mom didn't necessarily believe the severity of what I was trying to tell her. The reason I was calling her more or less was just because my grandmother, she, like I said, she wasn't a very pleasant person. She was drinking, although I didn't really understand that at the time. And so I couldn't really verbalize that very well. I mean, it also shouldn't have been your responsibility at 13. And it's funny because she actually later placed that responsibility on me that I should have said something sooner, that I should have been able to verbalize it, that I I should have been the one to, to do all of that, which your grandmother... So that's you, my mother. My mother. Their, your mother, yeah. Your parents were your were your grandparents. Were they adoptive? It was a permanent guardianship okay. arrangement within a family. I don't believe I ever entered care, um, and it was out of a different state. It wasn't even in the state of Florida. They arranged for me to stay with them. They had more money than what my aunt had. My aunt had me beforehand, though I, of course, don't remember that being so young. I was about three when I went to live with them. They determined that, you know, this would be the best place for me to grow up. Of course, nobody thought about them getting older, unfortunately. Like I said, they provided me a great life until I was about 10 or 11.
0: You said that the night you were removed, you went to your aunt and then you stayed there for four months. What happened after that?
2: At that time, I I can't really say exactly what the system looked like, but I do know that the Department of Children and Families handled the case. I never, uh, I wasn't with an agency. And so, again, don't know if the agencies now that are in place stepped in after the fact like after later years down the road. Um, But at the time, it was the Department of Children and Families. They basically told my aunt and my mom, like, this is what we want you to do. We want you to clean up the house. We want you to, like, a safety plan, essentially, is what they put in place. That took about four months to transpire. If memory serves, I was able to finish the school year at my school. My aunt very (laughs) selflessly drove over an hour to get me to school every day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was... It, it was quite the haul. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's was able pretty to be, incredible. Yeah. And it was eighth grade. So like, oh, I mean, it was a big oh. deal. It was like a milestone year. It was. It absolutely yeah. <laughs> was. So, I mean, in the middle of the summer, it was a June or July that I was able to go back. I was removed at some point in the school year. So probably about four months later, I, I was able to go back. Um, to your grandparents? Yes. To my grandparents. Oh. Back to the house where I was living. Things had a safety plan had been put in place, essentially, by the Department of Children and Families.
0: So after four months of living with your aunt, a safety plan was put into place and you moved back with your parents who raised you, which are your biological grandparents. Yes. What we normally see when kids are put back in home is
2: that there's a certain amount of time that the case remains open. Today, yes. That, uh, did, that wasn't the case then. That was not the case then. I might have seen a, another worker maybe once, but nobody ever talked to me. That It was pretty much case closed at that point. It wasn't what you see today where mom and dad, it was grandparents in a permanent guardian relationship. So maybe that might have been some of the difference.
0: In like the circuits that we work with, even if a child's going to a relative, both the guardian ad litem program and case management are doing visits for, what is it, six months in general? You mean six months after? After reunification. Yes. Or the move to this place. Yes. Yeah. Six
1: months. In some cases, it's three months if the guardian ad litem program wants to discharge off or whatever. But yeah, there's teams that are put in place and case management is certainly involved six months post reunification. But
0: that wasn't done then, at least in these types of situations.
2: It wasn't done for me. And so I don't know, of course, going back then, I didn't obviously have the awareness and understanding I do now. So I can't really say exactly why. I do know the system went through major reform since then because this was quite some time ago at this point. So I think a lot of it might actually come just from the methodology today is much different than it was 15 years ago.
0: You went home, there wasn't anybody asking you how things were, but there was a safety plan in place. And what did that safety plan look like?
2: Uh, You know, not being alone with my grandmother, food in the home, you know, the home is appropriate. To my knowledge, that was the end of it. There could have been more that I wasn't aware of. I, I wasn't really included in a lot of it, actually.
1: With nobody coming and following up, how did anyone know that the safety plan was being followed?
2: Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Was it being followed? For a little while. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I ended up losing one of my caregivers, my grandfather. So um, I had aunts and uncles who stepped in and they did try to do their best. I mean, they also had their own issues. They were going through things. And of course, I was still caught in the middle of this. It continued on this way for some time. Social workers popped in and popped out. There were calls still made on my family. Family. But as we talked about earlier, I was conditioned not to tell them anything, to lie to them. I was told, you know, you don't want to go to a group home. You don't want to go to a foster home. These are terrible places to be. You're going to be even more mistreated. So, I mean, you were in my foster home earlier
0: today and it definitely seemed pretty bad. I mean, did you see those kids <laughs> on, pile, like,
2: on top of each other? You would not want to be in the middle of that pile. <laughs> well, you know, you're just, I, I mean, there's a perception out there and... I mean, if you don't know, I guess if you don't know any better, that's, you know, that's what you're telling your children or it's what you're putting out there. And so that's what I understood. I, I was at one point actually given the opportunity to go to something we actually have here, but I don't know how different it is, but like a shelter essentially for children, like an emergency placement type of thing. So you go there for a little while and then maybe you can come home because of all these ideas that have put in my head. I took what I was going through over care because again, I was taught that it was such a negative thing. Right. And you didn't know. It was almost like the
1: devil that you knew was better than the devil that you didn't. Absolutely. You didn't know what you were going to be walking into. And even if what you were in was bad and it was bad, you knew it.
2: Yeah, exactly. I knew, I knew what that looked like. I knew what day to day looked like. Not for nothing. I had a lot of freedom. I mean, nobody was really trying to stop me from doing anything. So, I mean, isn't that the problem? <laughs> it is. Oh, by, by all means, it absolutely is. I knew that for the most part, I could take care of myself. And so I rathered that over what I didn't know and what these terrible ideas have been put in my head that I couldn't have possibly known any different. I didn't have any friends that were in foster care. I didn't have any friends that even could could say anything on the matter. So you were put
0: back in the situation. Nobody was really checking on you. Reports were being filed. They were, I guess, being
2: marked unfounded. I think it may be screened out. I I think because they had said they investigated those that they were false reports or, you know, the same things being reported. They didn't find anything. I made the determination on my own I, about 16 or 16 and a half, maybe, to leave. I was done. In this point, I'm in control. So I I went and lived with a friend and stayed there because, I mean, it it wasn't at home, right? That's all I wanted was I just wanted away from home at this point. But I was in control of that. It wasn't a foster home, no. But at the same time, I knew what it was, like, you know, the the devil that you do know, right? So... And how long did you stay in that uh, friend's home? Probably about a year until I was... I went to a different friend's home essentially but I ended up being like informally adopted by this family and I say I got really lucky and I I mean that because I literally just like, these people just like suddenly were in front of me. It was through friends. They were actually child welfare professionals. I look back and I'm like, what? Like, how did that happen? But yeah, I was actually a friend's parents. They were child welfare professionals and they saw what everybody else didn't see. They saw right through everything and they knew exactly what had happened and were able to understand it and so I ended up being able to have a family through them. You said it was an informal process. I was so old. I was almost 18 at that point. Okay. So, I mean, at 17, almost 18, an adoption can't happen. The system, and at that point, still, I don't know where the system was at and like what that really looked like, but the system knew. And that's just, that's where I stayed. Was it set up as a permanent guardianship? I was on my own. Honestly, the system was pretty hands off. I'm not going to lie. They knew, but there was really no intervention. This family and you, just kind of magically met through a friend <laughs> you, like you say it was
0: an informal adoption but was there a decision made like you're one of us now or was it just something that kind of evolved over time through your relationship
2: I think some of both it's kind of interesting she's my little sister now but after the first time that I met with them and I like hung out with them she asked them can we keep her <laughs> like, <laughs> can you not <laughs> say, like like oh. we talk about that <laughs> so cute. <laughs> yeah, so she was this like little 11 year old redhead and she's the cutest thing at, at this age and now, you know, she's quite the kid. I guess she just loved me. I don't know what it was. It was really sweet so I would hang out with her and stuff too as well as my friend. They saw what was happening. As they put it, I don't want just want to help you. I actually want to give you a leg up and I actually want to help you get to where you want to be and not just in the moment give you something. It evolved but it also kind of was like, you know, you're one of us, you're my daughter, you're my sister. And so the, the little 11 year old girl like, pretty much immediately was just like, you're one of us. You know, it was, <laughs> it, it was really sweet. How did that make you feel? For once, I mean, in my life, like I felt like I fit in with a family. It was it was really sweet. And it, it made me feel wanted and loved. And I knew then that it was really powerful to just have somebody to care. And so I didn't realize it right then what was going to transpire. But it 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 became, they became my family like they're everything to me now. And so I can't even imagine what would happen if I didn't have them. That's so amazing. You were 17, almost 18 when this happened, right? Yeah. I mean, I had to have been maybe three, four months from turning 18. Wow.
0: So one of the things, actually, I was listening to a podcast recently and they were discussing this when you don't have the stable family feeling of belongingness, that it's hard to like have a home base to like shoot off from right at the right time that you needed it, that was put in your life. I mean, obviously it would have been way better if that happened years before, Absolutely, right? Like maybe seven years before. <laughs> but, um, but then also maybe you wouldn't be the person that you are today Yeah. and you wouldn't be impacting other people's lives in the way that you are if you hadn't gone through that experience. But it, it was very timely. I think that right at that time where you need that nest to fly from that that was provided for you in your life and really in a sense it wasn't like anybody handed that to you you got that and it, like nobody brought you a family it was like these people are going to take care of you you were like all right well i'm going to get a family now you know what i mean <laughs> not that you necessarily would have even verbalized that but definitely totally um, not at you the time you were like i'm gonna leave this place because it's not safe i'm gonna go here okay this isn't necessarily the best place for me now so i'm going
2: here and that's your family yeah it, it like I said, it, it just kind of happened. It's funny. I only met them because my friend was giving me rides to work and they lived close to where I worked. They make jokes that my friend never really brought a lot of friends home. So like they were like one of the few people that they had met throughout her being in high school. They were very interested and, I mean, I was pretty much an open book. I really didn't try to hide it at this point. What I was going through, but also, I mean, you ask a few questions. It's it's easy to tell, like, okay, something's up. Obviously, they're more trained. They had more perspective and so they were everything at this point. So, Did you open up to them very quickly? I mean, I had told so many people. I mean, I told my teachers. I told my guidance counselor. I I told a school, a social social worker, school liaison of some kind, and nobody had done anything at this point. So, like, what difference? system? I don't know. I really can't. I can't. I don't know. I mean, we're in the same state. This isn't like the 1800s
0: here, right? Like, this no. is like <laughs> not, you're not 200 years old. No, this is not that long ago. I mean, it, it was 10 years ago. Yeah, but still, I point, mean, I mean, we're still men. 10 years ago. I was a married woman. <laughs> I like I mean, listen, for this, those of us a little older, that's not that long ago. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not. But, but I mean, but
1: you were disclosing all of this stuff to teachers and like th- these school people are professionals. These these people have all been mandatory reporters, social workers and, and you're telling them yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not even like reports are being called in. You're saying this is where I'm at. This is what I'm experiencing. This is my space. Yeah. And, and nothing.
2: And actually, crickets. yeah, pretty much. At one point, the school social worker liaison of some kind. I know now she worked with McKinney-Vento Act, which is for homeless children, essentially. And so I was handed paperwork at one point that basically said I was an unaccompanied minor. And so that's what it was left at, pretty much. Let's just leave it like that? That's what it was left at. I believe it was in some way legal, but that's what it was left at. An unaccompanied minor.
0: Was it easy for you to trust this family off the bat? Or did it take time for you to trust that they weren't going to mistreat you? Because you've had other experiences where you felt like it was going to be safe and it wasn't.
2: Right. So trust whether they were going to hurt me. I mean, I could tell they had good intentions. Like they were friendly people. I told them what, you know, was going on when they asked me certain questions. And again, I mean, I'd been telling other people, I'd been trusting other people. So it wasn't, I would say abnormal for me to share what was happening because at this point, nothing had been like happening because I was telling somebody. So at this point, I was very open and I I probably didn't tell them every single detail at first. That was about three, four months before I was turning 18. So it was about five months before I went to college. At this point, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of free floating. And so my relationship with them also kind of focused on like, okay, like let's like you want to go to school, like let's get you to school. I think it evolved more details, you know, came to pass as. Things came up. I'm going to assume at this time that the foster care system did
0: not pay for your college. Absolutely not.
2: I was <laughs> <laughs> um, just thinking the same thing. So how because you weren't in care. I wasn't in care the way that they would term it today. Right. Right. Did you receive a scholarship? Like, how did you go to college? Um, So when you're not a company minor, there's something on the FAFSA that you can check off that will give you a lot more aid. And so you don't have to claim anybody's income. You're You're adjudicated
1: dependent for the FAFSA and the financial piece of information that you need to go to college.
2: Yeah. So they didn't ask for those things, but I still had to provide that paperwork every year. So that's pretty much how that went in student loans, of course. But how did you even know? to do these things I was just gonna
0: say you how
1: did you know I mean obviously you're in high school you know you want to go to college so you know you have to take the SAT or the ACT yes and then you know that you have to then apply to schools and do all these things were you literally just doing all of this on your own
2: here and there. So like I had different adults being like, Oh, do this or do that. And so I'd be like, okay, I think at one point part of school was applying for the FAFSA. Like they brought the seniors in and would sit with them and be like, okay, let's apply for FAFSA. Okay. Like, let's start this process for you. There were different adults helping. And of course, like when I met my family, they were like, okay, yeah, like let's, this is let's what we're gonna do do this. all the things. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, at that
1: point, you're three months from 18, you're going to college in five months, application
2: periods. Have started. So I got lucky. I had already applied to a school. Like Uh, again, they brought the seniors in. They were like, let's apply to some school. uh, Let's get this. Like I had applied. They called me back, but I never really like did anything with it because I didn't know if I wanted to go there. I had another friend going to a different school and I was like, maybe I'll go with her. Like, well, I'll like stay in an apartment with her or something, you know, in a different city. And so that sounded like a great idea. It probably wasn't practical again. I mean, 17, you don't know what the real world looks like, (laughs) right? Because I had applied to the school. I didn't end up going to, that was actually the school that my family went to. So that was their door, basically. And that's where you had applied before you even... Before I knew them. It's like...
0: (gasps) That last
1: year or whatever kind of was fate had
0: kind of yeah. stepped in. So this is like, if the social kind of like, workers aren't gonna fix this. <laughs> yeah, we gotta fix this. Somebody do some crap, man. Yeah, but I mean, like yeah. you,
1: you applying, I mean,
2: going to the school that they went to, that was
1: their alma mater, and
2: yeah, I think my family had probably gone to some other schools. They did different things before they came to being into child welfare and being a social worker and stuff as well. At eighteen, I didn't know I wanted to be a social worker. I I was incredibly resentful of the system, obviously, as yeah. you at this point. I'm getting resentful. And it's not even the system <laughs> anymore. I know, I'm like completely incredulous. I'm like, who can we talk to now? And like, who did this? <laughs> uh, listen, it's, just, it's systemic, right? I knew I wanted to be a therapist. And so I knew I wanted to help people. And I decided that when I was 13 at that age. And then I stuck to it. I don't really know why I probably threw around some things like being a veterinarian, you know, because I love animals and just different stuff like that. But that always stuck out. Like that always came out on the end. I was going to go the psychology route. I was told I was very ambitious. And so I wanted to prove my family wrong. They told me I couldn't do it. So I was like, no, I'm going to do it. Like you can't tell me I can't do something and, you know, just hang out (laughs) to dry. Like I'm going to go do it. But you know,
0: it's phenomenal that you are where you are now and that most people who go through these experiences that you've been through, I mean, these are the stories that we're hearing from the bio parents that we talked to that are struggling with drug addictions. These are their childhoods. And you turned it around and put yourself on the other side of that table. I can't imagine most teenagers who are living in this type of home environment are using drugs
2: and they're doing what they want. Yeah, and they're, they're they have all the freedom, like you said. And those things were said to me, like, "Oh, you're probably going to be pregnant," or, "You know, you're probably doing drugs." And again, people were telling me these things, so I was. The very stubborn brat that I was. and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be a part of a statistic that I don't want to be a part but of. But that probably saved you. Probably. In, in some ways. Right? I mean, because yeah. you're so stubborn and they
1: were telling you, they were trying to pigeonhole you into being a statistic and you were kind of
2: like, screw you. <laughs> I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. I mean, I probably said those words at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I am like kind
0: of... Enamored with how you have taken control of a not great situation and totally flipped the script.
2: I mean, I really think that I not met my family, I probably would have been in a different situation. I really didn't know what I was doing. Like I was trying and I was aiming for like college. I was aiming to have a better life. And I knew that I didn't want to be the way that I was raised. I mean, if it wasn't for them, I really don't think. And they would probably say, no, you did it on your own because they told me that a million times. But like I, they were the biggest support and they were that one adult that like made the difference. I was a teenager. I wanted to do what I wanted to do still. And, but they still stuck by me. They were they didn't give up on me even when I tried to push them away. And, and that's pretty much how that relationship transformed. But because they stuck by me, it gave me what I needed to continue on. I want to beat them when I grow up now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: one of the things I wanted to ask you was what the system did well when you were going through this.
2: And I I feel like I can already answer that. Like, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I would say that when I was removed, there was an officer who, like, she pulled me aside. She made me actually feel really safe. And she was really friendly. Probably out of that time when I was in the system, that was probably the person I was most truthful with. I don't know what it was. She just made me feel safe. I was scared to go back into my house at this point when I was removed, but she walked back in there and she, like, sat in my room with me and she was like, just grab, you know, take the time that you need, grab what you need. She made me feel safe. So, like, I would... Attribute something that someone did well into that. But I mean, I would also say that my family, even though they weren't really like a formal part of the system that you would see today in a, in a process you would see today, they were the best thing. Like they were the best thing that could have happened. In the
1: end, it was positive. Yeah, you went through yeah. horrific things, right? And it was horrible. But none of that dictated who you are as a person. Yeah, I think this whole, I think the outcome was positive overall. It was I can't just believe. It a little
2: crappy the way you got there. <laughs> yeah.
0: For Sometimes sure. I say
2: to myself, but I've gotten here a different way, you know, because something else have been. You know, yeah, like, why I did I have, I have to, to go through that, that right. to get yeah. here?
0: You are like a powerful person. Most people don't go through what you went through and overcome. Like, it's not some like somebody rescued you from this situation. Like you rescued yourself, you know, <laughs> like you were like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm getting out and I'm going to find a safe place to be. And you found that safe place and they turned into your family and they sound incredible. This is you like this is what you did i think it shapes the way you
1: do your job so I much so i mean it i know for me in working with you i now am connecting some dots <laughs> in some ways that you have Advocated, okay. um, and I have
2: told several people that you have advocated so hard. And I try to be aware of my own bias because that's something we're taught in social work. But I'm going to be honest; I, I'm not alone. Like a lot of professionals have come from very dysfunctional families, or something that brought them to social work. Something's got to make you want to do it because nobody's paid you for all the time you're putting in and yeah. the heartache. We're, we're underpaid. We're overworked. So yeah. something's got to bring us here today's system, you're looking at case management and you're looking at some of the other professionals, whoever they may be. And you're like, why aren't you answering my phone call? Or, you know, like you're frustrated with them, but something brought them here. They might be struggling in the moment, but they do care. Like you don't come to this because you don't care. The system is much different now, of course. I think it's
1: a really good point for everyone to hear that everybody's working in the system that's been brought to the system kind of for a reason. And I think it would be helpful for everyone to remember Absolutely. when they're upset with the case manager <laughs> or they're upset with somebody else who's doing something to kind of humanize them mm-hmm. a little bit. I think they take on a really bad rap at times if they don't answer their phone. I mean, I, I can say I've been kind of in the same way, like, Yeah, they're not answering their phone. I've called them for two days and I can't get a hold of them. And then other times I'm like, all right, it's been 48 hours. Maybe they're on vacation. You know, maybe there's an emergency. I'm I'm not having an emergency.
2: Bahamas.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: Uh, I'm not having an emergency
2: like put it into perspective right that's what I've found I can't say that that's everybody of course but the connections that I've made in the system they come here for a reason and even in my family they're connected to the system as well they came here for a reason too I can't say I've met very many people that social work just fell in their lap and they're just like, <laughs> like I, I want to work long hours and make nobody <laughs> have everybody <laughs> annoyed at me all the time right. that's the job I want a
0: million phone
2: calls a day
0: you were talking about the police person that made you feel safe? To help those of us who work with kids in care, what could we do or say to help kids feel safe?
2: What sticks out in my mind, and I'm, I'm trying to go back to that situation because it's, of course, different when you're looking at it from an adult perspective versus when you're a kid in that situation. This person just got on my level. Like they talked to me like very softly, like they told me I was going to be okay. And that was probably one of the only people that actually told me you're going to be okay. Just, you know, whenever a child is upset, being able to, you know, get through to them and say you're okay, which I imagine is what many of you foster parents are doing when your children are coming you in the middle of the night, or they're having a moment like <laughs> you're, you're sitting Daddy Sitting on the floor with the kid hiding in the bathtub, uh, right? Right. Say boo, <laughs> right.
0: right? Yeah.
1: Offering, I know one of the things that I do when they first come in is oftentimes they've either been in an office or sitting in a car. I'm like, right. have you, have you eaten? are you right. yeah. meet the actual like need the necessity that their body actually needs it's like what is it Maslow's laws of hierarchy, hierarchy. like yeah. you've got to meet those meet needs that need first yeah. that i think then helps to gain some of the trust mm-hmm. and put them like that eases that anxiety because now this like hierarchical need is now met right and then we can kind of move to the next kind right. of space that's kind of what i do
2: and yeah, when yeah I, I would say that that would be um, that was something I was taught very early on, actually, uh, when working with kids. I want to say I learned that my bachelor's degree when I went to internship and I was like frustrated and trying to apply all this knowledge for real world <laughs> stuff. And so that was something I was taught very early on. You can't expect someone to do something all the way up here when you haven't met the base. I know you weren't in a foster home. However,
0: you were in a situation where you were in other people's homes as an older teen. And also you've worked as a case manager and as a licensing specialist. What do you think foster parents can do better just in general?
2: Maybe one thing is is more patience, because I remember in my own, and this was after I turned 18, but I tried to push people away because it's everybody left eventually. Right. So my family still to this day will say things like you're always waiting for the shoe to drop. And I've always been waiting for it whatever inevitable thing was gonna happen. I tested that water, like I knew eventually, like, you know, this was gonna fall apart. Everything had fallen apart before, so this was gonna fall apart. That's what I was thinking. They had an incredible amount of patience with me and again didn't give up. Maybe I would say that for some homes that get frustrated with kids pressing boundaries or or pushing them away or being destructive because they know it's the one thing they can do. Because at that point they are taking control. The destruction is in the in their hands. Like that's their control. And so maybe more patience, but our foster parents already do so much for these kids and they already do so much that is in a positive manner. Patience is something we all endeavor to have and we are all still human. Absolutely. And we
1: don't always have it all the time. And I'm not even going to speak for everyone else. I'm going to speak for myself. (laughs) I could have definitely handled certain situations in the moment better um, and been more patient. At least I feel like I can step back And look at it and kind of analyze like what role I played in not being patient and how I could have changed it because I can't control destruction or the child feeling their need to be in control. But I can certainly control Control my response. response. Yes, I can control my response. And I did not do a good job of that. Um, in one particular instance. I swear I will never do it
0: again. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yes. Well, and you had that opportunity again. Yes. And you were a freaking mama rock star. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah,
1: I I did. I had that I had the opportunity again, and I did not. You know the nice thing
0: about kids go. is they keep doing the same things. Oh, things. I know, they right? Give us the opportunity
2: to really get it right.
0: <laughs> I'll have
2: multiple chances
0: to correct <laughs> my, my thought better
2: to your cruise. Crazy one. <laughs> yeah, this is the test one, test two.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, about how they had to be patient with you and that you were waiting for the shoe to drop. How has this experience in your teen years affected how you are in your adult life, especially with relationships?
2: You ask that question and the first thing that comes to my mind is probably trust. I mean, that's probably what anybody would say immediately is a lot of people broke your trust. So to this day, like somebody in my position would struggle with trust and I do. There's always this like apprehension with new people or with new relationships or whatever the case may be. Something that maybe other people that might not realize is I personally sometimes struggle to understand family because I never had it. So I had my two parents or my grandparents who were my parents. And I had these aunts and I had these uncles and cousins, but it was very dysfunctional. So today when I walk into a foster home or I walk into a family's home, it's more difficult for me to understand those relationships because it didn't happen, right? So coming now into being adopted, that was probably why they needed some more patience with me was because they didn't understand. And so I had to learn what it was actually like to be in a family. And so I would say still to this day, there's a learning curve. How did they help you
1: with that? kind of how to be a, in a family. Yeah, how to be in a family. Like, was there, is there something
2: that you think you can point to? Is there something that kind of sticks out for you that helped you? Honestly, they didn't give up for lack of a better way to put it. Just like tried to help me understand like where I fit, tried to just let me be who I was and wherever I fit was wherever I fit. And then they were supportive of that. Like I said, I definitely tested boundaries. I mean, as any teenager is going to, and they had to be very patient with me, but at the end of the day, they always let me be me. They let me talk about my family. They were very accepting of, you know, I have this other place that I come from. And what they like to say today is that we're all like a family of misfits. And it's, it's <laughs> kind of sweet because like, you know, there's dysfunction in every family and that's probably very important to remember when you're working in this field. But my sisters are adopted as well. They're actually biologically related. They were adopted as well. You know, we're just little family. So you're family, but it's not, it didn't happen
1: in this kind of traditional way that society sees family being created.
2: Right. Do you have any biological siblings? I have two biological siblings that are half siblings. Technically, we have the same mom that I know of. Um, but they grew up somewhere else. Not yes. With you. Yeah. I never I never really grew up with them at all. I've had very little contact with them throughout my life. Do you have contact with your aunts and uncle, biological aunts
1: and uncles or any of the people that were kind of
2: that's, no, no, no. I think those relationships fell away. I watched my biological family. They were actually a family at one point And their dysfunction I was just kind of caught in the middle of. I watched them kind of all go their separate ways. To this day, there's maybe only other one other person in this state and the rest of them are all over the country. Not to say that I don't have them on Facebook and they don't <laughs> like my picture or whatever, <laughs> but you know, that would probably be the about ex- the, extent the extent. of the contact.
0: You have like a solid relationship with your family
2: now, which is your adopted. Absolutely. I see them regularly every holiday. Like we talk all the time. They help me through my journey in my career even too. So did I you mean, Have feelings of kind of ever just giving up and just
1: like, oh, not necessarily giving up, but just kind of giving up on the idea of family and just, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be different from them I'm going to make something of myself I'm going to show them kind of like what you were talking about before
2: I don't think I ever thought that far into it I think that I had no idea what family looked like so I just I don't think I thought about it and Mm so I I see that in some of our kids today even like especially our teenagers so I always have like a special heart for the teens because I know how that felt I know what they're thinking and and even though they're saying one thing they really mean something else because you know that's being a teenager as it is (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs)
0: What was it about your experience that made you want to be a social worker?
2: Personally, just looking back, I think they like slowly chipped away at this huge wall of resentment that I had against the system. So again, I, I mentioned I, I wanted to be a therapist against something I decided when I was like in middle school. And I st- to this day, I'm like, well, what, what was I thinking that made me think, like that made me want that? Maybe. And to this day, it's still the same thing. I wonder if it had something to do with
0: wanting to help people who... Because you were obviously living in a state of dysfunction and whatever it was that caused that probably looked a lot like mental health stuff, right? Right, yeah, maybe. So
2: maybe it was like... I like I wish I could help her not be that way. I don't know. School was the first focus. So my first major in college was psychology. I mean, when you start college, you go through the regular classes. So where you're not really starting your major quite yet. So they had the two years that before you get to your major to to convince me. And I, I think it took at least a year to slowly chip <laughs> away. But they introduced me to social work professionals. They introduced me to people at the school that they had relationships with that they knew were good, strong people. And slowly but surely, they were like, well, these are my goals. And so, and just helping me see what actually what it meant to be in social work, because I had this idea and all I knew social work was, was the system. And I think that's what a lot of people, they don't know that there is something else besides just the system when it comes to social work. At this point, I was like, okay, I'll major in social work. I'll get my social work degree. I'll get a master's. I'll be a therapist. But I'd always said, I will not go near the system. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> well that's ironic absolutely I even even when I graduated college I, I said to myself I am not working in the system and I mean at this point that wasn't even that long ago at all they had helped me see that by working in the system you can learn a lot about families and you can learn a lot about what it oh. means to be in a social work role they supported me through being a case manager especially getting started and so I was like okay I'll reluctantly do this and <laughs> I remember like my first couple months as a case manager I had to face a lot of what I went through. Yeah. I realized like, wow, like this wasn't done for me. And I had to be like, the system is different. And in my training, I learned the system did change a lot,
0: but you probably had to see it firsthand to believe it because you were like, right. This <laughs> isn't what I saw. Absolutely. Did you have any formal
1: therapy that you did yourself or really like you becoming a case manager and Kind of re-experiencing your trauma, so to speak, was kind of how you dealt with it.
2: I never had any therapy as a child. I think my family probably provided that support and that processing that you would find in therapy to a degree. And so when I came to the system, I had to face a lot of what had happened to me and kind of realize more and more that like it wasn't what happens today. And so that's what I more mean when I say like I had to face it. It's like I had to face the system and that I learned that that is not what today looks like. The systematic. Actually- actually has come a ways. And I can't speak to that county, but I can speak to what I see today. And I think kids are helped more today than I was. I don't know what it looked like in that county for smaller children, but at least for teens, I can say they are helped more today, but there's still lots of room to grow. Do you have any intention of ever being a foster parent? I always tell people I don't want children, like I don't want to have my own children. That's something that I've always felt and I don't really know why. I just never had the interest. I always say maybe I will adopt and it does come back to what I went through. I I do want to be able to adopt and help children. I want to be able to be that for somebody at some point in my life. Me and my husband have talked. He's absolutely open to it, but we've talked about fostering. And of course, when you're working in the system, it's really difficult to be a foster parent. So almost. Can you do a different county? You can do a different county. But if you don't live near that county, county to county is extremely different sometimes. And so if you don't live near that county, it can be even more difficult. And maybe in time, if I eventually step away from being a professional within the system, being in charge welfare like an agency in child welfare maybe i could because you absolutely could if you were a therapist even though if you worked with children in the system maybe with the guardian program i'm not too sure on that one but in different ways if but if you're a child welfare professional with like case management or licensing or the lead agency or department of children and families it's much harder to be a foster parent it's not impossible but
1: (laughs) no not impossible but it is difficult i know a few that are part of the agencies and that foster. And it is difficult. It does
0: present its own unique challenges. Yeah. I'm just thinking like with her experience, what an amazing mom she would be to some kid. I know. (laughs) I mean, I think you would inherently have more patience my kids can look at me and like I can help them in lots of ways, but I can never stand in front of them and be like, I've been in your place. I know what this feels like because I don't at all. Yeah. And, like some of the stuff that some of them have experienced, like I just I, I'm out of my league, man.
1: A lot of times I get foster care sucks and you don't know what it's like. <laughs> and all I can say is you're right. I don't know what it's like and it does suck. I can't even imagine what it's like to be in your shoes. Absolutely. Just to like validate it because it's true. I have no idea. I will never know my experience in it. And my perception of it is not the same as the child who's in it.
2: I mean, even somebody that went through the system, I mean, someone can say that to me and I'm still going to be like, I know I don't understand because every, every experience is different. something different. different. No case is exactly the same. And everyone's experience is incredibly different.
0: Well, I'm just saying that I think you would be one amazing foster mama one day.
2: (laughs) Uh, Can you give us a word that you think people would use to describe a foster kid? I think somebody that doesn't know the system or doesn't know foster children might, the first thing they might say is maybe troubled. Traumatized, maybe. So, what would surprise most people to learn about being in foster care? At least personally, I just wanted somebody to like to give me structure. If somebody had been like, You're grounded, I'd have been like, Oh my gosh, you care. Like, I <laughs> uh, probably would have been very upset, but like, but inside you'd be like, Yes, <laughs> kind of like I they care, like, there's structure. And so, and so we say children thrive with structure. I think maybe. That might surprise some people that they just want to be told, no, you can't do that. This is what's better for you. Just somebody to be there, to be a support, to be guiding. I mean, maybe that's not very surprising as foster parents, (laughs) but... Right,
0: but I think... I think that would surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think so, too. Because I think most people look at kids and they're like, they just want to do what they want. But they really just want someone to parent them. And by parenting, you give structure. And just that those things show that you care. Right. That's really what they're looking for.
2: And for myself, it was a really internal struggle because I was... At this point, taking care of myself for a little while. Even before I was on my own, I was still really kind of taking care of myself or making decisions that a 15, 14 year old shouldn't be making. I was parentified in that way. But at the same time, I just wanted someone to be like, no, you're grounded. Like, <laughs> Like, I just wanted that structure. Because that was a normal experience. Right? It was.
0: Being Absolutely. grounded is normal. So you're, you're saying that it's okay that I took my son's phone away.
2: <laughs> I am. <laughs> in 10 years He he might agree, but right now I'm sure he doesn't.
0: How do you keep from burning out?
2: I I think everyone's going to find their own way with this but for me from day to day it's it's going to the gym my husband listens like whenever i need him to and so really good support i have friends my community is the system a lot of my close friends they work within the system so i they're huge supports and so whenever i've had a really bad day like i have another friend in licensing in a different agency in a different county and i can vent to her we have a really strong team too and so for the longest time i have always said that a strong team it will provide the support needed to prevent some of that burnout. And I still believe that I had a very strong team in case management, very strong support with a really good supervisor and really good co-workers. And we all had each other's back. And so I think that prevented quite a bit of burnout. I think that they need to build a
0: gym inside the office because you are now the third person really that works for said agencies that has said that their thing is working out so like I think they just need some in the office maybe yoga we have a lot of people that do yoga. you know red she's doing it in group homes why isn't she doing it at the (laughs) office
2: I don't know we do have somebody that has taught yoga in the office but not red no bring her out man I'll come well, damn! Listen, I'm not great at yoga. I think one
0: time I like twisted my wrist from yoga. Like I'm not. I, I don't have great wrist strength from years of being a computer programmer and you know getting carpal tunnel and all that. Um, but I love that that thing at the end where you like lay down and you like kind of nap. I am totally <laughs> game for that one.
2: That that it's
0: my favorite part.
2: I do like that. Part. <laughs> but I'll come nap with you guys. <laughs>
0: um, so what do you do to prevent trauma? my fatigue.
2: I would say self-care would be the first thing. I work from the perspective of I'm going to get burned out from time to time, but I need to be aware of that and I need to practice self-care, especially in those moments. And so whenever work has really piled up and I'm feeling it, I make it a point to take a really good step away from work. And honestly, having strong boundaries around work, uh, I think is helpful as well. I I work my hours and I put my stuff aside and I, I try to enjoy life away from work. And, and having that separation has helped me. And maybe it doesn't help other people. I, again, everybody's probably different in this one, too. But my favorite thing to do is to just just go to the mountains and just, like, get away from everything. And, and so when I come back, I always feel more refreshed. And so I plan vacations as a way as well, so... I I record podcasts
0: (laughs) as my getaway. I love the mountains. What is it about the mountains that like make you feel good? I don't know. Why don't we all just live there? (laughs) The beach is it for me.
1: Yeah. The beach is it for me. I do commend your boundaries. Being assigned to you, you are very good about communicating the boundary and communicating You know, the event when, you know, your availability and also communicating when something else kind of comes up and something has to be done. You'll still do what you need to ha- get done. But otherwise, I find you to be very good with maintaining the boundaries and then being flexible if a situation arises and you need to be present and also very supportive. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I went through a really, really, really hard thing. No, and really? Yeah. <laughs> we should like do an episode of that. <laughs> your your support was key and you were. You were kind
2: of new to me at that point. I was. You didn't really, we didn't really know each other. No, I, I, and I knew this situation before I knew you too. Yeah. So. So you were
1: very supportive and I quickly relied on you. Thank you. For stuff.
0: Yeah. You're welcome. What are the biggest struggles that you see in foster care?
2: I think there are so many, but I think a big struggle is I don't think the agencies get enough support. There's so much put on to them. Talk about not having enough work workers caseloads being really high. And those are all problems. Those are huge problems. But I also think the agencies don't get enough support in terms of like resources and maybe not necessarily even from like a lead agency, but maybe having more agencies or having more partnerships within different agencies, like the therapy that's provided to parents or the therapy that's provided to children or the substance abuse programs that are available, like having those things really support the system more so, I think could be huge. What do you think the community can do to prevent more kids coming into care? Resources. And I think you talked about Miami having a different culture and how they have less children in care. And then here there's more children in care, even though we have less population. And maybe some of that attributes to the resources and just the knowledge of those resources, because this county in particular is more rural. I mean, we don't have a children's board. Access to resources are are very different here. I think that there's, I mean, there's lots of drugs in this area, too. And not that there's probably not lots of drugs everywhere or other places. Certainly in Miami. (laughs) 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 Well, and community outreach and we're talking about resources, I think would be two really big things to hopefully to to prevent more children from coming in care. Would there have been
0: anything that could have fix the situation in in your family that could have prevented it from getting to a point where you came into care?
2: Maybe in the middle there as the safety plan, so to speak, uh, fell apart. Maybe. But I mean, it's hard to say, honestly, yeah. I, I, I mean, don't want to be negative, but like I was kind of doomed from the start. Goal. And I so. think that I think some of
0: these situations are doomed from the start. I wish the system would have handled that way differently. So you wouldn't have had to go through things that you shouldn't have had to at that age. What are your goals to make positive changes in our community?
2: I think it kind of comes back to kind of how I came into uh, working in the field. I know that I can help empower people and I know that I can help people change the system for the better and and just change people's lives for the better whether it be just one person or it be a a ton of people just being able to share advocate just help them be able to to do better
1: you have done that already I, you have done that in my home specifically, very specifically, Thank the you, advocation, man. the making a change, the resources, everything you just said you have done in my home. Yeah, So you're Thank good. You. You're, you're you. done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know. So if you've done it for me, think about all I the have rest n- of us, you've done yeah, it. Yeah, I have
0: no doubt that you've done it for the rest of us. Well, thank you so much for coming all the way over here and sitting for so long in this warm room with us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm it's pretty really. <laughs> I'm worried jealous. And like we the problem with warm is you can't take clothes off <laughs> You cold you can put them on but it'll it'll be better in a couple months uh so thank you so much for coming I so much appreciate you sharing with us and teaching us like you teach me a lot anyways like whenever I call okay. you and I'm like what do you think about this like you're always teaching me but you've taught us so much today and you've taught our listeners as well so thank you I agree thank
2: you thank you
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.